know, if everything was settled and it was all done, you know, what would be the pursuit anymore, right? right? So to me, I think, I think, you know, and, and life is not about certainty. Life is about a search, as you said. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahel Badruddin, and today we have with us Shane Jiva, the head of constituency studies at the Institute of Ismaili Studies and a specialist of the Fatiman Empire. This interview is published in full for The Ismaili. Uh, Dr. Jiva, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk a little bit about the Fatimid Empire, generally as an empire. Sure. We know the Fatimid Empire was intellectually, administratively, socially, uh, it was an exemplar, just as other empires were, of course. I'm curious about what was unique about them and different from other empires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. The Fatimids are, first of all, the very name itself, right, from Fatima, which right. is a very unusual um, uh uh, t- sort of title that they take for themselves or, or a name that they draw upon themselves. Of course, from Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet and the wife of Hazrat Ali. And so the the fact that they call themselves the Fatimids um, is recognition of the fact that they saw themselves as the rightful um, religious as well as political heirs of the Prophet's authority. Um, and it is something that they invoke right through, uh, even in the first, when Imam al-Mahdi first appears in North Africa, and, you know, the Imams are appearing in terms of uh, of, of world stage uh, after 150 years of what has been called the Dore Satar, the period of concealment. And even so, the claim up front is that they are the true descendants of the Prophet and the progeny of the Prophet, who therefore, by that very fact, uh, have the prerogative and responsibility to reign over the Muslim world. So this idea of their Fatimid, their Ali lineage, is something that uh, is really quite distinctive to the Fatimids. Um, Yes. It's also interesting that... um, in the way that they develop models of governance that they directly draw from the prophetic precedent. So if you look at the prophet um, and when he arrives in Medina, the majority of the people in Medina were not Muslim, of course, when he first arrives. And yet he forms what comes to be called the Ummah. And as we know from the so-called constitution of Medina, that the Ummah constituted Jews and Christians and Muslims. Today that idea would sound completely, you know, odd to people. But in fact, that's how the Prophet's Ummah, you know, constituted. And you find that the Fatimids do something very similar in that they they see themselves as offering dhimma, offering uh, support, offering shade, offering their protection to all those who live under under their uh, empire, under their realm, whether they are Sunni Muslims or Malikis, Hanafis, Hanbali, Shafis, 
whether they are Shiite nationalists, whether they are Christians, whether they are Jews. And we know that once the Fatimids moved to Egypt, in fact, the, the majority indigenous population at that time uh, was very strongly, was, was Copt Christian. And they, the, the Islamization of Egypt was just happening. So it is only at the cusp of the Fatimid arrival in Egypt that the Sunni Muslims actually become a majority in, in Egypt. So the Copt Christian community, along with other Christian communities, Melkites, Nestorians, and several different Jewish denominations, were all part of the Egyptian scene. And yet all of these uh, folk are provided um, this uh, guarantee of safety, of continuing to practice in their spaces of worship, of getting justice according to their own matab, etc. So it's very interesting that while the Fatimids draw from paradigms that are around, for example, they by and large follow the Abbasid model of governance, they create spaces within those which allow for a much more broader inclusion of communities, uh, of, of people from different communities, uh, whether they're Muslim or not. Uh, and in that sense, their administration benefits from a much greater pool of people, of competence. Um, the third distinctive point that I'd mentioned is the fact that in the Fatimid state, the Dawa, uh, which is what led to the establishment of the Fatimid state in the first place, um, continues to receive, um, it becomes in fact an arm of the state, uh, much like the judiciary and the administration, which is very unusual because if you look at the Abbasids, when they first come to power, they also come on the back of the Abbasid Dawa. But once they are in power, very quickly the Dawa is dismantled. Whereas in Fatimi times, the Dawa continues to be the institution through which the role of the Ismaili imamat mm -hmm. is, is, is uh, portrayed, it's, it's disseminated uh, and furthered. Uh, and so the Da'is become, remain involved in the uh, propagation of the Fatimi doctrines and, and, and you know, um, uh, the role of the Imam uh, within that, um, within within Fatimid lands, but also in other lands. So it's very interesting that they have these, um, yeah, that they maintain those connectors. And then on the other hand, what, in your opinion, did the Fatimids lack that they could have learned from other empires? Well, I don't know about lack so much because in that sense they are, of course, part of the milieu and they draw, they draw from each other. But one of the challenges I think that the Fatimids also face is that the fact that they develop this, you know, they, they cut their teeth about uh, governance in North Africa. So there are times where initially they start off with a model of governance which is much more Ismaili-centered and they change. So, you know, when you have the revolt of Abu Yazid, um, which pushes the Fatimid ruled right up to the gates of Mahdiya. When Imam al-Mansur, the third Fatimid Imam Caliph, re-establishes Fatimid uh, uh, sovereignty across the, 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 you know, across uh, much larger swathes of North Africa, in appointing a governor over Kairawan, for example, um, previously there was an Ismaili governor, but is, but Kairawan was also a stronghold of Maliki Sunnis who was supported very much by the Umayyads of Spain. And you find that instead of appointing an Ismaili governor, um, Imam al-Mansur negotiates with the elite, uh, Maliki elite of Kairawan, 
and Maliki uh, is appointed as a as a Fatimid governor. Right. What Madalang, you know, this very well-known scholar of, of, of Shia Islam of says, you know, this is a major shift in Islamic governance, in Muslim governance. This is a major shift. Uh, and so you find that they learn to do these things in North Africa, which of course then they bring in Egypt. But one of the challenges I think that they face in Egypt is that their original power base of the Kutama Berbers, they cannot continue to that, that base in, 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 in North Africa, in Egypt in the same way, because now, first of all, you know, Egypt is uh, geographically very far from North Africa, from Ifriqiya, i.e. present-day Tunisia and Algeria, but also the methods of warfare, etc., are very different that they now need to employ, particularly in Syria, which is at that point a buffer between the Byzantine Empire, the Abbasid Empire, and the Fatimids. And so the Turkish elements get introduced into Fatimid governance. And when you have that introduction, you then find that the Turkish lobby at the Fatimid court and the Berber, you know, generals, etc., over a period of time, um, you know, really create two clashing opposition groups. And, you know, in times, for example, when Imam al-Hakim is appointed, he was only 11 and a half. These two power blocks really play out. And by the time of Imam Muslim Sibila, you have this uh, very well-known general called Badr al-Jamali who takes over. He's an Armenian. And he then shifts from just being what has been called the wazir, the chief minister of the pen, i.e. a scholar, to somebody who is now a, a chief minister who, who rules by the sword. And so those shifts in, 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 you know, in, in the demography around the Fatimid court um, and around the dynamics other than demography, the dynamics in the Fatimid court start to create um, fissures uh, that certainly weaken the Fatimids from within. And when that split happens after Mahmoud and Sibila between Nizar and Mustali, um, you know, of course, uh, to which uh, Badal al-Jamali and his son uh, al-Afdal were, were major architects, uh, that then creates certain internal weaknesses that the Fatimids never recover from. It's also a period where there are major external shifts that are happening. The Abbasids who had become, you know, who were previously being ruled under the Shi'i-Buid Amirs are now being governed or, or, or being supported by the Seljuk Turks uh, who are very, very, very you know, new converts in Sunni and therefore become a much more are able to, you know, um, hold back the Fatimids or check back their power and influence much more, you know, sharply. Um, the, you also have the um, uh, the crusaders who come into that whole region. So there are various external shifts that are happening. All of these eventually lead, of course, to a weakening of the Fatimid Empire. But and then, as Ibn Khaldun would remind us, you know, empires rise and empires fall, right? right? I mean, it's part of that pattern that you find all other empires, you know. So, yes, I think, I think there is, those are some of the factors, at least, that one can think about. I want to shift our conversation to more about faith. Mm -hmm. We often think faith is, uh, faith is just not intellectual, right? It also has a huge emotional component and a deep emotional component. I believe in the past, poetry was one of the way that the emotional component uh, was drawn upon, brought out. How, what emotional approaches were, uh, were active, you know, for members of the faith, specifically the Ismaili faith during the Fatimid period, and that inspired them? 
Interesting. Absolutely. I think I think poetry is a very key aspect of it all. We, for example, it's very interesting that even today, when you look at the Syrian uh, traditions of our Jamaat, um, they have this corpus of material called Anashid al Anashid religious uh, poetry, and within that, they actually even today have um, poetic uh, renditions from someone like Ibn Hani al Andalusi. Interestingly, from Andalus originally, then comes to settle at the Fatimid court uh, under Imam Moez, um, renderings from Imam, uh, from Amir Tamim Moez, who was uh, the oldest son of Imam Moez, etc. And these all form part of the repertoire of expressions of the Syrian Jamaat even today. Um, and within their tradition, this idea of the affective, of the emotional, of the expressions of poetry so within the Syrian tradition, these poetic expressions um, continue to be very live and dynamic. So, for example, um, you know, somebody can compose a poem on, you know, in the in terms of uh, the love for the Imam, etc., and it can be recited in Jamaat Khana as part of their expressions of faith. So you find that in many Ismaili traditions, similarly, you know, that, that this happens. So you find that in many Ismaili traditions, this happens. It it is also true if you look at the broader, um, uh, what has been sometimes called the Nasir Khusro tradition or the, you know, the Badakshan tradition, the broader one. If you look at there, you again find that, you know, they draw from a vast repertoire of uh, of poetry, of poetic expressions, not just from Ismaili renderings of Nasir Khusro and others, but even, you know, Hafiz and Saadi and Rumi. And these are all seen as figures whose poetic renditions, you know, speak to this idea of, as you said, the, the, you know, the, the expressions, the esoteric understandings and expressions of, of, of faith. Um, you know, art is another major expression, you know, uh, in all its forms, not just, you know, music is another, you know, extremely, you know, it can be extremely evocative and highly spiritual. So these are all elements, I think, that, you know, in the so-called scientific age that we live in, that we need to not lose sight of and ensure that as a living tradition, we we ensure that these expressions uh, remain very much part of the of of of, of our dramatic consciousness, uh, and in that uh, in that sense, the fact that at, during the Diamond Jubilee we had these expressions of devotion that you know then kind of were, were, were happened at each of the local levels and then you know national and then we had the finale in Portugal and all of that in Lisbon. I, I thought that you know that 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 whole expressions element is a very, very key part mm -hmm. um, that we mustn't ever lose sight of. Agreed. Talking about faith and academics, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the academic approach is to look at things in a quote-unquote objective manner. And I find that, you know, sometimes academics involved in scholarship of the faith they profess uh, sometimes have a difficult time reconciling the two. Can, how can academics reconcile confidently their academic work with their faith without being apologetic or shy, perhaps, about their convictions? It's an interesting point, absolutely. But I guess for me, I mean, if I think I can only answer from what I think. Absolutely. Yeah, and to me, the question doesn't arise, in, at least in my mind, in the sense that 
as a historian, I am pursuing my discipline as a student of history. Historian is too big a term to use, but you know, as a, as a student of history, I pursue my discipline. I pursue my search. I pursue with with the tools of the discipline, and with the rigor that I need to bring to it. And yes, when there are questions that you know bubble up or or arise, you look at those. You bring in other perspectives. You try and understand it from different ways of understanding, and you find ways. Of reconciling, or you find ways of understanding, and sometimes you don't, and so you live with those questions, you know, and you know and that is life. Absolutely, it is. You know, if everything was settled and it was all done, you know, what would be the pursuit anymore, right. right? So to me, I think, I think, you know, and and life is not about certainty. Life is about a search, as you said. Then, so, in the same spirit, if if I may ask, what would be a question, perhaps even a faith-related question, that you would welcome other perspectives. Hmm. Well, not nothing specific comes to mind in terms of a faith question. But as I said, you know, in terms of searching, in terms of understanding, in terms of discerning, um, one would want to bring in different perspectives, right? Because that's the only way one can understand, right? If one were only to look in one particular direction or one particular angle, um, that would be a very limited understanding. So um, searching for understandings, um, even in matters of faith, um, because um, even when we look at, at, at the way faith develops in terms of, for example, practices, in terms of beliefs, in terms of uh, interpretations, um, those um, evolve over time in context and, and, of course, under the guidance of the imam of the time. So, yeah, I think, I think it remains an ongoing search. It remains Absolutely. an ongoing quest. And that's what keeps it meaningful. I want to end by talking about the future. So we often talk about a vision for the future, and I want to talk about your vision for the future. If you could share a vision for the future, and then perhaps what insights and suggestions would you give for us to achieve this vision? I guess I'd want to broaden the question a little, if I may. Absolutely. And yeah, and talk about, you know, if there are issues today that concern me. One issue, for example, I, I, I feel quite strongly about is about, you know, our custodianship of the environment in which we live. Right? And this idea that, you know, the earth and its resources are, of course, there uh, for use. But, you know, what use do we make of them and how can we be responsible in our, in our you know, in our use of the environment? Um, and how is it that we can better uh, educate? You know, you know that, you know, particularly in Western contexts where there is so much available, right? There is, uh, you know, the amount of waste that we put out, um, which we then also dump onto the, you know, callously onto the developing countries. You know, that, that sense of responsibility, that sense of um, engaging with the environment where we better educate, where we better inform, where we therefore, of course, make use of resources, but do so responsibly, responsibly, where we replenish. We don't simply continually, you know, um, deplete, 
the resources. Um, and there are several practical ways in which those can be done, right? I mean, you know, our use of plastic, for example, is a classic case of, you know, I was recently in Tanzania with a, for a family break and, you know, we were at this small town in which had a beautiful beach. It's still the beach is very beautiful. Um, and, you know, powdery white sand and, you know, the lovely ocean and... Mm -hmm. But the amount of plastic that was littered right across the shore uh, was truly saddening, you know. Um, there, it used to be a beach which, which used to have lots and lots of shells, for example. You barely find any. You find all these dead coral instead. You know, what are we doing to the, to the life of the oceans, you know? What are we doing to the marine life, you know? Yes, it's it's very sad, but it's also very. It feels very. Um, it's it's very callous. It's very. It's it's deliberate. Deliberate is not the right word, but you know it feels very. You know we we are inflicting this, uh, you know, on the environment around us, and. For the fact that we are in the 21st century, we are supposed to be much more knowledgeable and much more, as we see ourselves, you know, uh, astute about the world around us, or we claim to be. Um, we actually are very poor in terms of our record uh, of how, how we respect the earth in which we live. So yes, if there is a particular area where I feel quite strongly, and I think it is an issue that we all need to be aware of, uh, I mean, look at what climate change is doing to all of us. Look at what's happening as we speak in America with the floods and all of that. So I do think that, yes, those are some of the issues that I feel, you know, we need to address better. Satjiva, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you, Sahil. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Canada Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com. <laughs>